Hello, I'm Don Mockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 82, for the week of July 28th, 2021. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on July 28th, the moon is about 80% full in the morning sky, rising about an hour before midnight. This gives us a full hour, at least, of dark sky observing before moonrise. By the end of our week, Tuesday, August 3rd, the moon will be about 25% full in the morning sky, a crescent. The moon reaches third quarter on July 31st. On Thursday, July 29th, the planet Mars passes 0.7 degrees north of the bright star Regulus. However, this will be only about 23 degrees from the sun in the evening sky. If you want to see this event, get out there an hour after sunset while there's still some twilight in the sky. Saturn reaches opposition on August 2nd. That means we are between it and the sun. We are about 10 times closer to the sun than is Saturn. But when it's in this position, it rises at sunset and sets at sunrise. This is also the closest we get to it all year. Over the next couple of months, it will slowly pull away from us, more quickly in the months after that. But until the end of the year, Saturn is now in the evening sky. If you're throwing a star party, Saturn will be one of your targets. The bright planet Jupiter follows Saturn by about an hour. It reaches opposition in a couple of weeks. But even now, by time the sky darkens, both Saturn and Jupiter will be above your horizon. The Hubble Space Telescope seems to have fixed its hardware problems. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? which for our purposes begins Wednesday, July 28th through Tuesday, August 3rd. This week we have six zones. All you need to know is your latitude. North of 56 degrees north, forget it. The ISS will not be visible this week. From 51 to 56 degrees north, You'll get the ISS for only the first one to three days of the week, and it will be in your evening sky. From 32 to 51 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky for the whole week. Some nights you might be able to see it twice. From 18 through 32 degrees north, you won't see it for the whole week but only in the last part of the week, and, and then it will be in your evening sky. 
from 40 degrees south to 18 degrees north. That's a large part of the Earth. You will not see the International Space Station at all this week. From 55 through 40 degrees south, you can see the ISS in your morning sky, sometimes twice per night. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. A new comet was discovered in the past week. You might not be able to see it because of its close proximity to the sun as seen from the Earth, but it is an interesting discovery. It was discovered on July 21st by H. Nishimura, who used a digital camera with a 200-millimeter focal-length lens, aperture about 70 millimeters. The comet was about magnitude 9.5 and only 23 degrees from the sun in the morning sky. Nishimura had discovered one previous comet, and that was a visual discovery of a comet in July 1994. It has the second longest name of all comets, Comet Nakamura Nishimura Makholtz. Yes, I, I co-discovered it too. It was not my ninth comet discovery. It looks like Nishimura has switched from visual comet hunting to using a camera or CCD. Most of the old visual comet hunters who had found comets visually have now switched over to using a more sensitive means to search for comets. Others have simply retired from comet hunting completely. I'm still visually comet hunting, as are a few others. I still enjoy the search and the challenge. But our chances of visually finding new comets are slim due to the sky surveys, which are finding asteroids and comets that are much fainter than what we can see. The last visual comet discovery was nearly three years ago. The one prior to that was eight years before. This comet, Comet 2021, the letter O, the number 1, 202101, Nishimura, will remain close to the sun as seen from the Earth. It is more or less on the far side of the sun. It reaches its closest point to the sun on August 12th at 0.79 astronomical units. I noticed about a decade ago that comets going into about 0.8 astronomical units of the sun are prime candidates for visual discovery. They often do not get far from the sun in angular distance, meaning the surveys do not get them, and they come in fairly quickly, but not so fast that there are not a few weeks of possible discovery, and not so close to the sun that SOHO cameras pick them up. On the morning of July 31st, the comet passes one-half degree south of the star Castor. It will be running from the west to the east at 1.5 degrees per day. If you want to see it, you have to wait until it rises, which will be near the beginning of morning astronomical twilight. There will be a 43% moon, 
74 degrees away, but moonlight won't be the problem. The twilight will. It is about magnitude 10. Again, July 31st, just south of the star Castor. So a hearty congratulations to Nishimura for this comet discovery, a difficult comet to find. And if he had not found it, then it probably would not have been found. With every discovery of a fairly bright comet, and this is one of them, I go back through my notes to see if the comet prior to discovery was in a part of the sky that I had swept. Now that an orbit has been calculated, I can run it backwards and see where the comet was. I keep extensive notes on my comet hunting sessions. Going back through my notes, on July 8th, 13 days before it was discovered, I swept over the comet and did not see it. On that morning, I started at 2.25 local time using my 18.5 inch, that's a half meter reflector telescope, and I swept until 0.410 local time. I sweep in the horizontal direction from north to south and drop the scope a fraction of a degree after each sweep. And my final sweep at the bottom of the area was from right ascension 6 hours, 33 minutes, declination plus 45, to right ascension 5 hours, 20 minutes, declination 26.1 degrees. The comet was about a degree above that last position, at right ascension 5 hours, 16 minutes, plus 26.8 degrees. I would have swept over it on the previous sweep, about 0408 local time. Now at that time, the comet was 8.6 degrees above my northeast horizon. The sun was only 13.9 degrees below the horizon, so twilight was emerging, and the comet was about magnitude 11. During that session, I saw some open star clusters, M36, M38, NGC 1907, and the nebula 1931. And I also saw two meteors and 23 satellites. The sky was rather clear that morning. It would not be expected that the average person or the average amateur astronomer or even the average comet hunter would visually pick up an unanticipated 11th magnitude comet so low in the sky during twilight. Digital cameras and CCDs are more sensitive, so they would pick up such comets, which is why some of the former comet hunters have turned to this technology to find comets. Of course, I still do it the old-fashioned way, and sometimes miss out on some of the comets. I too could switch over if my main goal was to simply find comets, but I prefer the scenic route. I enjoy the visual searches and the challenge. Here in Arizona, we are in what is known as the monsoon season. It begins early in July and runs for a couple of months, with rain nearly daily and cloudy most of the time. This is our third year here, and it is the most cloudy and rainy monsoon season we've seen yet. 
Nevertheless, I did get more comet hunting in done after July 8th, but covered other parts of the sky, not where the comet was. If we had had clear skies for the past two weeks, my normal search procedures would have had me re-sweeping the area the comet is in, and with it a bit brighter and closer to the sun, perhaps I would have found it, who knows. In around 1976, I came up with my comet hunting theory to help with my comet hunting. You see, I had been searching for comets for more than a year, and others had found comets I had not despite my extensive searches. I wanted to break the comet discovery process down into easy parts and determine the criteria that must be met to find a comet. I found that there are three requirements for finding a comet. In my comet hunting lectures, I discuss this, and, and people laugh at the first one. And the first one is, you, you must be looking at the comet. I give a couple of examples. But most importantly, there's 40,000 square degrees in the sky. Where do you look if you can only do perhaps 400 square degrees, or 1% of the sky in one night. The second is that the comet must be bright enough for you to see it. A telescope and observer who can pick up faint galaxies in a 6-inch or 15-centimeter telescope, say down to magnitude 12.5, will likely sweep over and miss a comet of magnitude 11.5, which is two and a half times brighter. When they're sweeping the sky and the object is moving across the field and it's in the field of view for only a couple of seconds. The other thing to remember is we usually do not sweep high in the sky where the sky is darker and more transparent. No, no, no. I generally start in the morning sky at 12 to 15 degrees high, then work downward from that. More atmosphere, more haze, more light pollution at those low elevations. Normal observers, non-comet hunters, seldom look less than 30 degrees high in the sky. Now, the third requirement for finding a comet, besides looking at the right place and seeing faint enough, is that you must find it before others. Up to three names can be on a comet if all find it within a few hours. If you are late to the party, it is counted as an independent discovery, but it is not a named comet. In other words, you do not get your name on it. Besides my 12 named comet discoveries, I do have one independent discovery, Periodic Comet de Vico in September 1995. None of us who found it got our name on it because it was an unanticipated returning comet. Many comet hunters have at least one independent comet discovery for which they did not get their name on the comet. Leslie Pelter discovered 12 comets, but he has his name on 10, as two of those were considered independent discoveries. So those are the three requirements for finding a comet at the right place, at the right time, and seeing faint enough to see it. How did I do? 
For this comet, I had two of the three. I was in the right place and at the right time, 13 days before it was discovered, but it was too faint for me to see it. What can I learn from this? Because I consider myself to still be a student of comet hunting. It tells me that my comet hunting program has a good game plan. It puts me in the right place at the right time. But I need to be able to see fainter objects. I will work on that. Podcast 82, Comet Positions, has the positions of Comet 2021-01 Nishimura for each day. For our Comet Observing this week, I'm introducing Periodic Comet Fay. Its official name is 4P slash Fay, F-A-Y-E. It returns every 7.5 years, and over the next few months, it will be about magnitude 11, brightening down to magnitude 10. It will be closest to the sun on September 8th at 1.61 astronomical units, which is outside the orbit of Mars. It is in our morning sky, and as the moon is now getting out of the sky, late this week and next week would be good times to get out and see it. Comet Fay was discovered on November 23, 1843, by Hervé Fay, an amateur astronomer in Paris. At Discovery... The comet was magnitude 6. Over the decades, the comet has dimmed a bit. This time around, the brightest we can expect is magnitude 10 in September. Periodic comet 15P Finlay is in our morning sky, not far from periodic comet Fay. It is presently magnitude 10.5. These comets are plotted on Podcast 82, Map 4, Comets. The positions, that is the right ascension and declination, and distances from the Earth and the Sun can be found on Podcast 82, Comet Positions. You can also get the positions for these and other comets from the website heavens-above.com. Click on Comets. Now for the Astral Class. Open Star Clusters, Associations, and Star Asterisms. Two weeks ago, we talked about stars. And last week, it was double and multiple star systems. As more stars gather into a group, we have what is known as an open star cluster. Technically speaking, an open star cluster is made up of stars that formed from the same molecular star cloud and are all about the same age. They move through space together. This makes it very convenient for professional astronomers to study as the individual stars are made of the same stuff and they can be tracked as they age and interact with each other. A star asterism is a group of stars too. But most asterisms do not have a common origin. That is, they may not have started out from the same cloud of gas. Large-scale star asterisms include the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, the Southern Cross, 
the summer triangle, the square of Pegasus, Orion's belt, and so on. They are not constellations and not recognized as such by the International Astronomical Union. There are smaller star asterisms such as M73, a group of four stars. More than likely, those stars are not related. So officially, it's not an open star cluster in the traditional sense, but you would not know that looking at it through the telescope. There is no dividing line between asterism and, and star clusters when looking at them through the telescope, so we will treat them all the same. And we will call them open star clusters or open clusters for short. There are hundreds of open star clusters visible in the small telescope. Open clusters are the second largest category on my massive marathon list. A catalog of over 600 deep sky objects. Only galaxies have a larger number. Open clusters range from looking fantastic to, is that all there is? Due to the vast diversity of open star clusters, it's necessary to classify some of their characteristics so the observer knows what to look for. Primary is the brightness of the whole cluster. Uh, that is, if all the star's light is combined and if the light is brought to one point. This is the total integrated magnitude. Next would be the size of the star cluster as seen from the Earth. This can be difficult as many star clusters have an inner core of a good number of brighter stars than at least a smattering of stars outside the main core. You look at the cluster and you think, how far out does it go? Another characteristic is the number of stars, and this is difficult too. Does every star in the area count as a cluster star? Robert Trumpler, in 1930, devised a classification system for open star clusters. It consists of three indicators and is sometimes still used today. The Astronomical League has a program for open star clusters, and in that program they do ask you to classify over 100 open clusters using the Trumpler system. Now, this Trumpler system has three components. The first component uses a Roman numeral, one, two, three, or four. A one is if the cluster is detached from the surrounding star field with a strong central condensation. Roman numeral two has little concentration and three has no concentration, while a Roman numeral four means it blends in with the background and not very well detached. Those are some of the most difficult ones to see. Now the second component describes the range in magnitude and is the number one, two, or three. That is, are all the stars about the same brightness? Not how bright are they, but are they all about the same brightness? A one is a small range of brightness among the members, while three means there's a large range of brightness. Finally, a third component is how rich the cluster is. For this, the letters P, M, and R are used for poor, medium, and rich. The letter N is used if nebulosity is involved in the cluster. 
I've also seen other ways to rate the visual appearance of open star clusters. Fred Klein in the early 1980s used two numbers, 0 to 9 for the visibility based upon size and magnitude. It was mathematically derived. It ranges from 0 to 9, with 0 being the easiest to see and 9 being very difficult. He then gave a grade for each impression, with A being a while and F being lackluster. This seems reasonable as it helps the amateur astronomer to know what to expect. For my massive marathon with more than 130 non-Messier open star clusters, I give each a rating from 1 being easy to see to 5 being very difficult to see in a 10-inch, 25-centimeter reflector at about 40 power. With the magnitude and the size and arc minutes, the task of identifying the object becomes easier. Add to that a photo of each, and it should be a slam dunk. That book, by the way, the Massive Marathon book, will not be out for at least a year. I'm working on it. Generally speaking, open clusters look best at low to medium magnification, and their large size requires a medium to wide field for all the stars to be visible in one field of view. Binoculars work well with most open clusters, and I suggest you use binoculars too when you're observing them. Let's look at a few in our evening sky this week. This is a sampler from the best to the least impressive open star clusters. They are plotted on podcast 82 map 3 open clusters. We will begin in the south near the stinger of Scorpius and work our way northward to the tail of Aquila. All of these clusters are Messe objects between about magnitude 4 and 8 and all are visible in binoculars and a small telescope. Most of these we commonly used to show at our public star parties. We begin with M7, which is big and bright, magnitude 5, and about a half a degree across. There's some very bright stars in this one, and it's 780 light years away. We move up and over a bit to M6, which is more compact than M7. It looks about half the size, because it's about twice as far away. We move over to M8. This cluster has some nebulosity involved. It's known also as the Lagoon Nebula, but it also has an open cluster involved. We move up a little bit to M21. Now that is small and faint, and it's not very impressive. We go further up to M24. Now this is a large star cloud, not a real cluster, but it has tons of stars, dust, and gas. It measures 80 arc minutes by 35 arc minutes in size larger than the full moon. There is a small cluster in it, NGC 6603. It's a tiny open cluster, but that in itself is not M24. From M24, we move over in one direction to M23, which is a smattering of faint stars 2,100 light years away. Then go back to M24 and keep going over to M25. 
and 25 is a smattering of bright stars. It looks much different than M23. Go back to M24, then head north a bit to M18. Now this is a small lackluster cluster. It's about 4,000 light years away. Go up a little bit more, and this one might be difficult to find, M26. It doesn't stand out very well. It kind of blends in the background, and it's not very impressive, but see if you can find M26. Finally, we go further north to just below Aquila, and we see M11. M11 is one of the best clusters in the whole sky. Crank up the magnification on it and pull out some of the stars. That's this week's tour of open star clusters. Next week, I'll discuss globular star clusters. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? The moon is now out of the evening sky. Get out and see Saturn and Jupiter. See some comets, up to three of them in the morning sky. And look at some open star clusters. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 82 for July 28, 2021. I'm Don Mockles. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockles.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. You can contact me at Don the Astronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that is Don the Astronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky. We'll continue to watch those comets in the morning sky. And I'll discuss globular star clusters and we'll go out and look at a few. We'll also prepare for a great meteor shower. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.